So, hi, um, thanks for joining us at this Institute for Government Labour Party conference event on how a Labour government um, would ensure the country is prepared for serious risks. Um, thanks very much to the British Red Cross for making this event possible. Um, I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Deputy Director of the Institute for Government, and I've been doing lots of work on the COVID inquiry and, and preparing for serious risks over the last few years. We know that over the last few years, the UK has faced all sorts of serious risks from the pandemic, to the invasion of Ukraine and the ensuing cost of living crisis, an increasing number of extreme weather events every year, both in, in this country and abroad. But I think these events highlight just how difficult it can be to plan for extreme risk and to recover when those events occur. We know that emergencies fall on people unequally. We know that unequal health outcomes is going to be a big theme um, throughout the COVID inquiry and in, in the first report that we're expecting next year. Um, and we know that some groups are more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, of health and other threats. Um, last year, uh, the current government published a new resilience framework setting out how it will go about strengthening the systems um, and capabilities that really support resilience. Um, the first phase of the COVID inquiry, which was focused on how prepared we were uh, for the pandemic, is also due to report next year. So there's a lot of focus in this space at the moment. I think early lines of, of questioning in the inquiry suggest that the inquiries likely to found that our, our kind of planning fell short um, and that resilience and emergency planning might well need its own dedicate, dedicated minister. So we're here today to talk about what Labour should do in this space and what its plans are. Really pleased to have a fantastic panel to talk about this with me. And we will have um, Dame Mia Griffith, MP. Uh, <laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Who is um, Shadow Minister in the Cabinet Office, in the Cabinet Office and, uh, and owns this, this area. We've got Mike Adamson, the Chief Executive of the British Red Cross. Professor Claire Bambra, uh, who's Professor of Public Health at Newcastle University, and Tom Sass, who is a Britain Public Policy Editor at The Economist and was previously at the Institute of Government and owned our work in this space. Okay, so Nia, sorry, I've barely given you a chance to, uh, to sit down, but I am going to come to you first and ask you to outline how a Labour government would approach improving the country's preparedness for serious risks. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed, everybody, for having me today. And just to say that uh, I have only taken up this brief uh, very, very recently. And so I expect many of you are far, far uh, more expert in the topic than I am. But hopefully by working together, we'll be able to get things right. Um, I think, first of all, if we want to improve resilience, then we've got to give it status. We've got to believe in it. We've got to say this is something which really matters. It's got to be there. You know, top of the agenda, it's got to be something that we absolutely want to do. And uh, that is a, you know, is a fundamental plank. And we've got to look at it as a whole system approach. So that we're looking at central government as well as what's going on locally. What's going on locally has varied. Um, there's some very, very, very good examples of some local work. We saw in COVID the failure in central government, and I can't help but contrast uh, what happened in Wales, where we had problems, and I'm not saying everything was perfect, but there was a rapport between the Minister for Local Government, Julie Jones, and the leaders of the 22 councils across Wales, which are our unitary authorities, so therefore each had the same responsibility. And that constant dialogue that she had every week uh, and as often as was needed, you know, in other words, at least once a week, if not more, um, was very, very important in preparing them for what they were going to be asked to do 
and then telling them when they'd actually have to do it and leading up in that very, very careful, controlled, three times a week public announcement that we had in with us. And that contrasted, I think, with the chaos we saw in Downing Street where you know, press conferences were late and nobody seemed to know what the other was doing. Now, obviously, when you're dealing with UK-wide, it's a much huger scale, but we absolutely have to sort it out. We have to look at the way the local resilience forums work because there's been such a mishmash of local government reform. We have different mayors with different powers. We have unities. We have multiple systems. We have such a plethora of different local government systems that clearly it's high time that we had a bit more um, clarity um, as to exactly who does what. I think we need a minister for resilience within the cabinet office that so clearly the status and the importance, and that's something that you know, we are determined to, to ensure, and to make sure we coordinate across government. Everybody hates cross-cutting themes because they know that you're often the least important thing for the other departments, but you've got to have that strength and you've got to have the full backing of the Prime Minister behind you as that cabinet office uh, minister, and I think that's extremely important. And then a cabinet subcommittee on national resistance, which actually has formal responsibility for preparedness and for resilience policy. And we'd like to see as well, we will implement a review of COBRA. We had a ridiculous situation of Prime Minister not turning up to COBRA. What is COBRA? We had a situation where the devolved governments were not part of um, the dialogue. I mean, all sorts of things that you know, shouldn't have been uh, happening. Um, and as I mentioned, the local resilience forums, again, there's a mixture, there's variability, and we want a clear accountability for them. We want good training standards, the proper training. I mean, training is the most important thing. And uh, inspection and quality assurance, and have that liaison between the government office and local government in the same way as I've just described uh, we had with Jim James and the councils in Wales. You know, we want somebody in central government as a liaison officer you know, with each of those local um, resilience forums. So that's the, the sort of picture. And I think we need to build on the expertise that's actually there and then use the expertise of the wider community. Now, I always joke that it's because the Welsh a bit nosy that our test and trace system was far cheaper and far more effective because we used local government. But the fact is that local people have local knowledge and they would ask the questions, well, didn't you call in at so-and-so on your way home? Because they know the geography, they know where the person's likely to have gone, they know who the person's likely to have met. Uh, whereas we had all those tales of people uh, being trained and then sitting around doing nothing on some sort of test and trace contract, then somebody actually um, needing to use the service and it not being appropriate. So uh, that's a, a, a way that we want to build out then and very much involve our communities, but in a way which is not just ad hoc at the last minute with you know, thousands of volunteers never contacted for something, but which is actually fundamental to the way those local resilience forums work. So I'd better stop there. Um, perhaps I've given a few ideas for thought. Thank you, Nia. That was great. 
Um, there was one thing in particular I wanted to pick up on uh, your um, your point around, you know, having a kind of dedicated minister um, in this space and that they would take on responsibility for coordinating then across government, as you say, something that Whitehall so often struggles on, these briefs that sit across multiple departments. But I think something that came out really strongly in, in the pandemic, and I'm sure will come out um, in kind of other major shocks as well, is that actually there was a real fragmentation, not just between departments, but between Whitehall and local areas. Um, and that, you know, kind of coordination, sharing of information, of data was something that you know, organisations really struggled with. So I would be fascinated to know what role you would see a minister playing in, in doing that, not just coordinating across Whitehall, but really reaching beyond Whitehall to ensure that those relationships are where they should be. Yes, but it's like so many things. It's the the tone is set from the top, and when you see what happened uh, in the pandemic, you saw that they say the, the devolved administrations were often left out, so that they were told, you know, the, the president of Scotland, the surgeon, president of Wales, Sir Mark Blakeford, uh, were often given information at the very last minute, um, and as I say, the way of making sure that you have that ministerial contact with those leaders in local government was something that we could do on a small scale because there are 22. But we have to replicate that so that that minister in the cabinet office has a, a way of very quick dissemination and getting back the information. So you don't have a situation that you know, Blackburn or whatever has only got 90 minutes notice it's going into lockdown and, and, and the you know, local government. Uh, leaders are, are, are sort of popping around in amazement at where did this come from? Uh, so, you know, we've got to avoid that that, that situation and try to uh, look at a way that we can build that network and make it effective. But then it needs practice. It's like everything else. You can't be doing this when the fire is there. You've got to do the prep before all incidents occur. Thank you, Nia. Mike, I wanted to come to you next. I think something else that came out really strongly from the pandemic was the incredible role that the voluntary and community sector plays in, in responding to, to shocks. So, you know, from your experience, from your perspective, what kind of role should the voluntary and community sector be playing in improving our, our resilience um, as a kind of country? And, and how can government go about supporting um, and their role? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I agree with much of what Nia has set out as a broad framing and actually that you know part of the challenge here which we see in our international work as well is kind of how, how do you make resilience sexy because actually it's not an accident that we managed to raise lots and lots of money after an emergency has happened but not before yeah. and that's because actually it just doesn't we've got to create a sense of jeopardy sadly and and the world has become as you described in your opening Emma you know more more dangerous more interdependent more threats be it from geopolitics or from climate change um, 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 or, or did, you know, terror attacks. And you know, that is captured actually quite well in the National Risk Register, and which has now got far more human aspects on it. We, we really welcome that. We think there's further to go. And the roots of our learning has really been um, coming out of Grenfell, uh, Tower Fire response, uh, but then leading into you know, COVID, you know, Ukraine, then arrivals from Sudan, then you know, years responding to, to flooding. And the key thing about what we learned from the Grenfell Tower response was that I'm proud of the fact that the Red Cross responded. We were in the, the rest centre written into the resilience plan you know, from the early hours of that morning. But actually the mosques opened up, the churches opened up, 
Local youth groups opened up in the early hours of the morning, and they would never have thought of themselves as an emergency response organization. They would, would have been the last thing they would have described them, uh, themselves as, and yet they were. Um, and that's, again, what we see internationally. The first responders are the community and the people who are already there. And the thing that is you know, distinctive about the voluntary and community sector um, really is that you know, in terms of emergencies and the increased threat we face is that they're there before, during, and after all of those emergencies. So they, they're there before. So actually, if we can be, help them be better prepared, that's got to be a good thing. Um, you know, during, they're responding, and then after, they're helping with recovery. And so often, the emergency services do an amazing job um, in the 24 hours of a response, but actually, the recovery can take months or even years. And actually, that is then becomes very much a community, community activity. Um, I think the second thing that is really distinctive about the, uh, the voluntary community sector, it is naturally person-centred. It is naturally trying to look at a person, as a whole person, in terms of their needs um, and what, the, what they need help with. And that may be because of their uh, health status or maybe because of their migration status or because of their economic status, but actually we're trying to look at the person as a whole. And that's just an instinctive way in which the voluntary community sector works. It doesn't mean we get it right all of the time, but actually that is how we are um, trying to think and therefore trying to adapt you know, to needs. I always remember being at Grenfell and meeting a lady who had three disabled children aged from four to 11, um, and um, she needed nappies for all of them, but the only nappies that were in the, all the stock that had been created were for, for, for babies. And actually, you know, we were able to give cash which is empowering, um, uh, and then she was able to go and you know, buy, you know, buy what she needed. So we're instinctively adaptive, trying to find new approaches to enable people to get, uh, have their needs met in a very person-centered way. And the third thing that I'd say is sometimes underestimated about our sector is we're incredibly professional. You've got a mix of large you know, national organizations like ourselves, St. John Ambulance, the Salvation Army, um, who understand all of the regulations and the quality standards and so on that's really important to um, engage with. But actually, you combine with local organizations that are, are, are plugged into communities, but in combination work incredibly professionally um, to make, it, make a difference. And so what's incredibly heartening coming out of COVID is the increased recognition of the role that the sector can play. But I saw through COVID the um, yeah, the, the big challenges of working across central government where there was just too much going on, individual central government departments not working well enough together. It was a real struggle you know, to crawl across and to find out who's making the decisions. Um, and then the, the relationships between central and local government, as you highlight, just incredibly difficult because we haven't really decided whether we're a, a centralised country or, or we, want to be, we want to be both central and local, and we haven't worked out quite how to pull that off. So central government didn't have information about need locally, um, and nor could it know how to, how to collect it. So the, the local resilience forums are key. Um, they're very inconsistent, um, but there's a lot to like in the national, new national resilience, resilience framework, actually, around a whole society approach that is you know, focused on you know, strengthening uh, preparedness. Um, and what we would like to see is the explicit um, expectation on LRFs, an explicit set of standards and expectations, an independent review of LRFs, and that would include the ways in which they connect with the voluntary and community sector to enable the kind of uh, ways of working that I've, um, I've just described. 
Um, I could talk for a long time, so maybe I should hand, hand on, but I'm sure we'll come back to some of those things. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Mike. Um, Claire, I'm going to come to you now. I'd be really interested to hear your response to the kind of framework, uh, the governance framework that Nia set out. Um, but I'd also really like to hear what you think the pandemic has taught us um, about how to make sure the UK is more resilient to future shocks. Okay, thank you. Yes. And uh, I welcome uh, the comments about, you know, what, what a Labour government would do in this space and making it more embedded and between the community and central government and having a dedicated minister. I think that's clearly something that has been coming out from some of the, the public um, inquiry. In terms of what we can learn more broadly from what's happening with the COVID inquiry, particularly in module one about preparation and resilience, is that if we look, and it's probably no surprise to this audience, but if we look at other crises that have happened, economic crises, when we've had a climate crisis like flooding or hurricanes, previous pandemics, there have always been inequalities in those outcomes. So, you know, there were social inequalities in Spanish flu, there were social inequalities in the 2009 swine flu. But as part of my role with the COVID inquiry as an independent expert, I was asked to review uh, with my colleague, Professor Sir Michael Marmot, the planning documents. We had a very exciting month or so looking at that, I can tell you, from 2008 through to 2020, probably 30 to 40 documents, some on emergency planning in general, some pandemic specific. And as, as we said in our evidence, given what we knew about other crises and vulnerabilities, there was almost nothing in any of these documents that considered that people are different and that places are different and that a disease does discriminate. We might remember Michael Gove started off in the pandemic saying the virus doesn't discriminate. All of the history of social epidemiology and indeed the data from the COVID um, you know, study shows that that's just completely not true. We know it is going to affect some people more than others if you are more vulnerable and mostly it's defined in the documents as clinical factors, and that's very strict what that means, particularly in some of the documents, and, and as we see now in terms of the vaccine, who it's available to. Clinical risk is defined extremely strictly compared to what we might see as a more social risk for people's more general underlying health conditions, or indeed the conditions in which they live and work, which makes them more vulnerable. So that issue of not taking into account, in effect, how our society is structured and that people go into a pandemic and places go into a pandemic not on an equal footing. So that was the first thing. The second, of course, that we could have entirely predicted these inequalities would happen. But the third thing is sort of thinking, what should we be doing in trying to make our resilience and our planning better? Then from this inequalities perspective, we recommended in our, our report for the inquiry that yes, we need to be using particularly our local public health expertise like you described in Wales, who know their community, who know the demographics of that area, um, in order to plan where you might need to be storing your antivirals, for example, where it's going to be most in need of PPE. And you can never predict it entirely. You know, it's a novel infectious disease, but you can on average, I think, predict where might need it more. And certainly locally, that some of that work was happening. You know, I had colleagues involved in planning where in across the north would we be needing hospital beds next, right, during during the first wave. But in an emergency, rather than, as you said, we could be running that, you know, in advance and modelling some of what we might need. 
So I think for us, it was very much about trying to embed this idea of health inequalities, a health equity lens across all aspects of planning. So for example, SAGE, the, the uh, scientific advisory group, there was no consideration of any kind of unequal impacts until their fourth or fifth meeting, why we were well into lockdown, for example. So there was no expertise on that. They didn't set up a consideration, a subgroup on ethnicity, for example, until uh, you know the, the, the end of 2020. So there are ways in which we can ensure that that understanding around inequalities can be built into, not just into pandemic planning, which obviously be my specialty, but also when it comes to other things like flooding, um, hurricanes, uh, fires and so on. Anyway, I shall leave it. Thank you, Claire. I just want to pause here for a second because this point around inequalities and vulnerabilities is so important. And Mike, I, I'd love to hear your view on, you know, Claire's made the, the case that this needs to be a concept that is more embedded in the way that government thinks about planning for, for crises and for shocks, not just kind of clinical factors, but the broader kind of social risks that people face. Do you think that it has become more embedded in the way that government thinks about managing risk and preparing for future shock, or is there more to do? Uh, there's, there's a lot more to do. I mean, it's encouraging within the UK resilience framework, it is at least recognised as an issue. And of course, in the pandemic, we saw that the, you know, clinical, the clinically most clinical was only one lens we saw digitally excluded we saw economically excluded people in the gig economy who couldn't stay at home we saw um you know people excluded because of migration status not having the confidence to come forwards that that, that they would actually be treated you know as, as kind of uh, people who, who needed support or whatever so there is multiple sources of what multiple reasons why people are maybe underserved or unable either choose or be unable to access the support that they need in these circumstances and i don't think we've yet got a very sophisticated way of thinking about that and how to build that into our emergency preparedness i mean claire and i were just talking about that earlier D during covid we as the british Red cross developed a vulnerability index that tried to look at the covid factors um, in a multi-sectoral way and actually identify which postcodes were therefore most likely to have those kinds of people in that therefore um, local authorities and indeed the voluntary community sector could target its support towards and that did influence the allocation of resources but I don't think I wouldn't claim that we have a systematic way of doing that that is suitable for the different for the range of different emergencies that are on the national risk register and that is one of the streams of work coming through in the UK resilience framework that is just getting underway now um, that will pull together lots of the already available data um, but that's I, th I think that has to be a key a key thrust actually of creating because this I feel quite emotional about it in a way this is about or passionate about it this is about national resilience and national resilience means enabling everyone who need you know, to, to be resilient because most of us we're resilient anyway We've, we have access to resources we have you know we can um, get access to services but it's for the, if we're serious about uh, resilience as a as a whole nation we've got to be thinking about the people who miss out and that we and therefore we need to do systematic work on it thank you mike nia do you feel that um that labor's approach to um preparing for kind of shocks and supporting us to be a more resilient country has that focus on supporting people with vulnerabilities and, and acknowledging inequalities um, at its heart well i think it's certainly something that we've got to work on but i'm not sure that we we got it exactly right, should we say, at the moment in terms of have we got the information, have we got the knowledge, have we uh, got the expertise? It, it certainly seems 
a case that you know, fares out very very well, that it wasn't even thought about by Sage at the at the time of the pandemic. So I, I think absolutely we have got to factor in where are the greatest needs, where are the vulnerabilities, where are we. Um, things that we are going to have to make sure we have ready in, in the pandemic. But the problem we've also got is that we have got a society where we have immense inequalities. And this is a much bigger thing than just the issue of resilience. We really need to work constantly at it. I, just a very small example, but we have four doctors' surgeries in the richest ward in my small town and only one in the whole of the rest of what is a very deprived town. Um, it, you know, it's quite extraordinary, and I'm sure that Claire could give many, many examples of this type of uh, problem that we've got in society. You, know, you look at homelessness. Yes, we get them all off the streets because there's a pandemic and people are afraid they might be a pool of infection. It's a sort of selfish approach, isn't it? Whereas actually what should have been happening is we should have been dealing with the issue of homelessness and getting people off the streets anyway. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's so much to do. I mean, the agenda is massive for us, but tackling inequality at all levels is, is absolutely core to our philosophy. It's certainly got to be a priority now because things have become more and more unequal, um, particularly obviously in the next 13 years. Thank you, Nia. Tom, I want to um, come to you now. As I mentioned in your um, previous work at IFG, you focused on how government can improve its handling of serious risks. Uh, kind of based on that research, what, what were some of the most important problems that, that still needed to be addressed and, and, and where is government now? Yeah, well, I mean, it's really striking if you think sort of even just two years ago, sort of sitting and having the, these conversations, we were still sort of completely dominated by the, the COVID experience. And that was sort of right at the centre of everyone's consciousness and it's really striking just how quickly the debate really has moved on and sort of politics comes back and sort of day-to-day -day pressures comes back and, and and for our research we look back at the different crises that UK governments had managed over the last 20-30 years. We looked at BSE, mad cow disease, we looked at swine flu, uh, foot and mouth and you saw a couple of trends actually looking back at the inquiries into those things. One was a, a sort of tendency to fight the last war, so to sort of focus on previous threats and crises we faced uh, as if those might repeat themselves. And actually, the next crisis always tends to be a different one, and it's quite easy to fall into that trap. The other thing that was quite striking going back over those inquiries was actually just the same things came up over and over again. Lack of service capacity, poor coordination in government, uh, limited ability of, of ministers and, and politicians to communicate with the public when these crises hit and I think that speaks to that point of actually government you know we, we get very focused on the crisis when we're in, in the midst of it and then day-to-day -day pressures return and, and actually you know we, we, we sort of move on so I think it would be difficult to sit here and say now that actually Britain is much more prepared than it was for the next crisis than it was sort of three years ago before before COVID I think that's the first thing I think Mike's absolutely right to say that in a sense you need to create some sense of jeopardy, some sense of why this is a critical national mission to, to address this. And I would suggest that probably geopolitics is perhaps the most powerful way to do that. If you think about what we've experienced since COVID, a sort of Putin's invasion and an energy crisis that has made us um, materially poorer as a country and affected sort of everybody's um, uh, sort of day-to-day -day experience, I think you can suggest that 
similar types of exogenous threat can have, have the ability to do that and to really knock you off, off track in that sense. Um, I think it's really, really good to see Labour focus on this. So I, I chaired a panel back at IFG in, in December with Oliver Letwin, who is sort of the conservative who's probably thought most about this problem. He's even written a semi-fictional book about it called Apocalypse How, which I would encourage you all to, to read. It sort of imagines the end of the world in uh, Letwinian style. Um, but uh, Oliver said at that event, so we had Fleur Anderson, Nia's predecessor, and it was really interesting. Oliver said, actually, I think Labour has the ideas and the energy on this question around resilience. So he was clearly quite disappointed with the way the Conservative government had responded post-COVID and the fact that this had quite quickly been deprioritised, handed to a sort of junior, fairly anonymous minister who gets sort of shuffled around all the time. And quite a lot of ideas on that side of uh, the House weren't being, being put through. So I think it's really good to see Labour focusing on it. I think the idea of a minister for resilience is absolutely right. Um, I mean, I think we have seen some progress. So we've had a resilience framework. We've obviously had the latest um, national risk register, but I don't think it's being prioritised within the cabinet office or, or within the, this current government. Um, our research pointed to a couple of other issues with the way that government is organised. So we looked through the sort of process from sort of identifying risks through to how they were managed. Um, we found that quite often risks weren't identified um, sort of quickly or well enough. Uh, clearly, we, we massively underestimated the threat of a, a novel infectious disease. But actually, if you look at the way risks are identified and monitored, we're quite good in some areas, national security, weather type of risks. But actually, if you look at some of the others, infectious diseases, biosecurity, we don't have really strong agencies uh, looking at those. You know, it's, a, it's a, a reasonable question to ask whether the Department of Health has the sort of capacity it needs to see which sort of health risks are emerging across the world. It's quite a lot of talk post-COVID um, about, you know, how you're monitoring those, where they're flaring up and where they might be emerging. But I don't think we've yet uh, solved that. Um, and then I think we, we, what we argued for was a much stronger way of organising risk at the centre of government. So you had the Civil Contingency Secretariat, which was essentially quite a sort of underpowered unit, which struggled to get purchase on departments. And then you had departments running these sorts of risk exercises, but then not really carrying the, the lessons through. So I think really sort of beefing it up at the centre would be useful. I just wanted to throw some other potential you know, ways this intersects with Labour's agenda out there. So we've talked a bit about public services. I think that's probably the most obvious lever to boost resilience in the country is to actually get a grip on the massive crisis we have in, in the NHS, you know, 7.2 million people uh, in, the, in the backlog um, for procedures, um, that's clearly going to undermine the resilience of local communities when, when these sorts of problems occur. Um, local government, so I think as Mike who said, a lot of the research here, if you look around the world at which countries manage resilience best, they put a lot more emphasis on local authorities. They tend to have stronger regional and local government anyway, but they put more emphasis on that. And that's for really good reasons, because you have that local network, that local knowledge, etc. I would suggest that in this country, our local authorities don't have the ability to do that at all. Um, so if you if you look before 2018, we had about 20 years of no local authority going bust. We've since had nine local authorities go bust, four in the last year. Uh, some of those have, have made you know risky decisions, etc. But actually, what you've got facing us now is the prospect of very well-run local authorities going bust because they have simply cut 
every service that they can possibly cut and they have nothing left to do. So I think our local authorities are in a real, real mess and actually, you know, getting a, a better sense of resilience in the country will be difficult to tackle if we don't sort that out. So I think that's something for Labour to look at. Um, I think alignment with the growth mission. Clearly at this conference, we're going to hear a huge amount about growth. We don't want to talk about raising taxes, of course. Um, but so, so growth is sort of the answer that Labour wants to put out there. I would suggest that actually there's a resilience angle to that. So if you want to be getting back to growing at 2.5% a year, you need quite a lot of things to go right. And if we are hit by some of these external threats that really knock us off course, that's probably not going to happen. So I'd be thinking about framing you know, how do you get resilient growth that is is sort of sustainable given the type of world that we live in? Um, and then the fourth challenge, I think, which came up a bit in our research is just how you uh, prioritise spending. on what, what What's the areas of spending that's going to give you most improvement in your resilience? Um, I think it, it's quite interesting if you look at, back at COVID and think that we rushed to sort of set up these Nightingale hospitals, which then were barely used, you can sort of ask the question, is building new hospitals actually the best way versus more preventative type action? Um, should we be thinking about how to make our public services more adaptable to different types of threats? What type of skills do people have? How can they work in different types of roles? I think those sorts of questions will be really important because obviously money is going to be very tight. So I think you want to have a really clear sense of which investments would we prioritise to improve resilience. Brilliant. Thank you, Tom. I'm going to come to the audience um, in the next few minutes. There are just a couple of bits from what Tom said that I want to um, put to other panel members. Claire and Tom talking about public services, and we have talked about it a bit, but I'd like to just stay there for a moment. Um, you know, from your perspective, what would you like to see from the next government that would help ensure public services are better prepared and have more capacity to withstand future shocks? Okay, so yeah, I mean, one of the big factors in why the UK had a much higher COVID mortality toll than other European countries was because, as Neil was saying, uh, health going into the pandemic was worse. Life expectancy was falling in some of our poorest communities and the gap between rich and poor had increased over the last decade. As we said in our evidence, that, of course, is at the same time as public services, welfare benefits were cut, uh, funding to the voluntary and community sector was, far, uh, was cut. In the pandemic planning documents that I read, though, a lot of the emphasis was on what local authorities could do in an emergency, what the voluntary community sector could do in an emergency to help vulnerable people, even though at the same time, by the other hand, the bigger hand, let's be honest, has been taking all the resource out of those groups to, to do that. So in terms of public services, we need to think again what Labour did most of the time Labour's been in, in power. There's been an improvement in public services and an increase in NHS, but also often a more efficient approach to the public sector as well. Thanks, Claire. And then... Um... Mike Neer, one of the other points Tom was making was around um, geopolitics. And I wonder, you know, we're living in a, a world of increased kind of international interdependency. How should we be thinking about planning for um, global shocks in, in that context? That's a big question. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to that, other than that, um, yeah, when you look at uh, the response to, for example, the tragedy that's unfolding in Sudan, um, the you know two and a half thousand people arrived from Sudan at UK airports, 
40% of them had no friends or relatives here, even though they were uh, UK passport holders. Um, and what we were able to mobilize was the same essential partnership that we created post-Grenfell and then amplified during COVID, which is we created a platform, which is 250 voluntary organizations. It also does include government departments and visits in the community. It's called Voluntary Community Sector Emergency Partnership. 70% um, of the members and partners within it are local organizations. Uh, it's co-chaired by myself and um, uh, the chief executive of the umbrella body for local organizations. And it's an example of large and small organizations coming together um, and trying to put away some of the historical baggage about the relationship between large and small voluntary organizations and say, how can we help the nation be more resilient? And so what happened when those people arrived at uh, airports um, is that British Red Cross volunteers, trained British Red Cross volunteers with psychosocial support skills and so on, were there to meet with, meet with, meet them. We were able to uh, put, get cash into their hands incredibly quickly using some of the capabilities you've developed internationally to help locally. But then through the partnership, we were able to work with local voluntary organizations that were in the places where those people were going to go. Um, and indeed with student, mobilized Sudanese diaspora organizations through the spirit of uh, the partnership we'd created. Because one of the key and a really important phrase in the work, you know, in the emergency world is you make friends before you need them. Um, and actually that's about the relationships we develop from national to local and then across the local ecosystems as well. And I think that's an example of where whatever the threat is that's on the National Risk Register, um, uh, actually some of the preparedness, not all of it, is quite similar across those different um, threats. And, um, you know, that I think is key. And I think that requires, so the, yeah, so I just want to comment on the resource availability, but you know, resources are clearly a big issue for all organizations, including ours, to be honest. Um, there's a lot of resources tied up doing the wrong thing. Um, and part of the problem is that we create lots of, try to create new new ways of doing things with attitude, rather think about how do we unlock what's tied up unproductively or lower value. And that requires a practice of a different kind of leadership about how we lead collaboratively across a system. And that's not an instinct of all organizational leaders because they're accustomed to leading organizations but it requires a curiosity um, about how to achieve shared outcomes um, and to give up a little bit of one's own profile or power in order to enable that to happen. And I think we need to see that across the health and social care system. I think we need to see it across health, social care and the voluntary sector. We need to see it across central government departments. And it's a different way of thinking about how we achieve the outcomes we need. And that gets at trying to unlock the resources that are already tied up, but aren't being applied in the right areas. Thank you, Mike. Mia, can you come to you on global shocks then and bring out to the audience? Oh, international um, level, of course, it's very, very challenging. But you know, let's look at what we have done in the past. If you think back to Gordon Brown and the cancelling of third world debt, um, or developing countries' debt, uh, those are the sorts of things that can be done at an international level if you think big. And I'd like to see the UK back on the world stage certainly working with all the various international organizations not defying international law so that's a start and then we do have some experience with nato and with other allies on the military side of things with joint exercises but clearly 
the whole issue of bringing people together in the way that perhaps COP26 is done to look forward to what can be done to combat uh, climate change is absolutely essential. We ought to be trying to use the same sorts of um, mechanisms to look at how we deal with um, emergency shocks uh, in the same way as we want to coordinate locally and internally so that we can actually discuss some of these issues. I say we, we have got some, some models there and some of the work that's been done, as I say, particularly with you know, the COP26, particularly with the, the financial um, uh, endeavours, including the Taylor Paxton Nuclear Tax report is going to be. Thank you, Nia. Okay, um, you guys have been waiting for a while, so I'm going to come out to audience questions now. I'm going to take them in groups of three, so um, put your hands up. Uh, if you could uh, tell me your name and which organisation you're from, that would be fantastic. Okay, let's start here, and then here. <clears throat> um, I am, sorry, I'm Clara Collingwood, and I'm from uh, COVID-19 Free Families for Justice, who campaigned for the inquiry and now trying to make sure lessons Yeah, could, couldn't get the question out either of us there. So my name's Henry Parker. I'm from Logically AI. Uh, we're an AI safety company. So we try and look at risks created by, which are existential, um, such as uh, ones we've all been witnessing this morning with certain politicians. Um, <clears throat> my question was about chronic risk. I was quite surprised in the National Risk Register to see chronic risk eliminated completely, and taken out. And what is, what, why is chronic risk not in the National Risk Register? Is it because different government departments are given responsibility for managing it? In which case, I can tell you that with chronic risk from AI, there is no one department looking at that at the moment. Or is it because they just don't want to put in... I'm just trying to get to the bottom of whether Labour would see chronic risk as something that it should be managed by this new Minister for Resilience and whether that's appropriate and why it's not in there at the moment. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, James Jins from the Centre for Long-Term Resilience. Uh, we work to build resilience to extreme risks. 
Um, I'd like to ask the panel two questions. Um, does the panel think we do any better now in terms of response if we were suddenly hit with another pandemic? Um, and do you agree that a whole of government approach uh, to risk should involve alongside a minister for resilience, a government chief risk officer and a national resilience institute um, to build resilience to complex extreme risks in a cross-cutting way, get away from sticking plaster measures and underpin uh, Labour's five missions. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so we've got, um, should uh, civil, civil contingencies legislation, um, chronic risk, why is it not in the register? Are we in a better place? Would we be in a better place now for another pandemic and whole of government approach? Nia, I'm going to come to you first. Right, well, um, okay, so on the, on the civil contingencies, uh, I mean, obviously that goes back to, well, they've done very responding after the, um, the put them out and so forth, I think it was about 2004. Um, what we've said very clearly is that we, you know, we do want to have a cabinet subcommittee on national resilience with formal responsibility, actually mm -hmm. you know, defining formal responsibility for preparedness and resilience policy. And, you know, I would see that it flows from that, that we have to then have the um, inbuilt responsibility down the line. So we can't just, as you say, have a gap. Um, and it, it has to be something which is, it, it builds into uh, what we do. Uh, and as you say, there could be a case for um, the new legislation um, in that particular field. Um, chronic risk, yes. I mean, that's... Uh, that is, uh, you know, an issue that's not in the National Risk Register, and I think uh, there's quite a bit of overlap between chronic risk and what you might call the sort of the pandemic type, and uh, uh, you know, that's pretty much a very serious incident type, uh, whatever. So uh, it's certainly something we need to we need to look at, and, and I think um, we'll bring into our thinking a lot more. Um, are we better prepared now? I'm afraid uh, I'm not uh, very optimistic. I really am not. Um, I, 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 <laughs> uh, I think potentially, uh, mentally, we may at least not be so surprised. But I honestly don't think that uh, things are in a better state. And certainly, uh, many of our services are completely undone, completely exhausted. Um, and the, the health service being not so example. So I don't think we're in that place. And um, I do think I would just like to mention um, coordination. This comes up time and time again, whether it's the Manchester Union um, or whether it's Grenfell. And that I think is an area we really need to work incredibly hard on because it does seem communication and coordination are really areas. And it's all that this business. I do my thing, I do that quite well, you do your thing, you do it quite well. But, you know, how do we work together? How do we get that communication from the top to the bottom, from you know, side to side? Thank you, Nia. Mike, I wondered whether you wanted to come in on the whole of government approach question. Anything else that you'd like to? Um, yeah, so I, I agree with what Nia said about, are we better prepared? I think we, what we have is, we have a lot of relationships have been developed that were not there before. Um, and that is puts us in a better place. Um, but the institutions themselves are massively overstretched and, and people as well. Um, the, 
the, the emergencies of the last few years have been layered on top of a cost of living crisis and uh, health crisis and so on. So therefore, there's less resilience in that sense. Um, in terms of the whole government approach and um, and the Civil Contingency Act, so we recognise. So we're not calling for change in the Civil Contingency Act, but we recognise the Northern Ireland problem, um, and that was a very, as a specific issue to be addressed. The whole government approach. I mean, what I'm, I'm not sure is the honest answer. What I would say, I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about it that the person, the minister responsible for resilience currently is called the Paymaster General. I mean, what does that what does that signal? Um, who knows what the Paymaster General does? Um, um, and, and that even as we think about it since 2017, I do think 2017 was a watershed year in terms of Grenfell and the series of terror attacks and recognising that the country was much more vulnerable than it thought. Um, whereas before, you know, notwithstanding, you know, 7-7, and so it had been a, about a series of floods. Um, and actually 2017 was the watershed year and we started to look at things differently and then that has just carried on. So in that sense, you know, and that's why we do need a Minister for Resilience and, you know, very happy to look at what, you know, what, what I don't really know what a National Risk Institute exactly would do, but a Chief Risk Officer seems a prudent thing to do, doesn't it, in a world that is much more risky um, and, to, and to, to, you know, take that forwards. Thank you, Claire. Yeah, it wasn't Tony Benn, the Paymaster General, at one point in the 70s, in charge of the post office and wanted to change the Queen's head off the stamp. So, you know, that's well, what I associate <laughs> with. I didn't realise he had been in charge of uh, planning as well. OK. Um, more seriously, just in, in, in response probably to, to, the, to the one um, from James about um, what, you know, would we do better in another pandemic? We're kind of still in one, right? Okay, and uh, you know, if we want to use the technical epi definition, but whether it's endemic or pandemic in terms of COVID, you know, we could have a variant. We could easily have a mutation. I know it, we want to think it's all over. So, but in terms of do we think no? I mean, as Mike was saying, we're not in a position where the health or infrastructure of the country uh, has improved, and obviously. We're not even really planning around the COVID vaccine. So, you know, the rules have changed. So it's only clinically vulnerable and over 65s that allow the current booster. Why? You know, what's the science behind behind why that's, that decision has been made? And, and there's a big inequalities in terms of the COVID vaccine and the COVID vaccine uptake. And some work that we've been doing with the Health Foundations calculated that around 42 deaths per 10,000 a population is to do with this unequal uptake of the vaccination. That's a planning issue. We're not going out. We're not talking to communities about why they're not taking. We're not adapting what we're doing as, as a public health infrastructure to support that. Thanks. Thanks, Claire. Tom, and if I can ask you to be super quick, then I can try and take two more questions from the audience before we finish. So just, just briefly on the second question on, on AI and, and chronic risk, uh, other people in the room much more expert than me. I would just say in the last six months, that has sort of bubbled up as uh, a real issue in the media. Clearly, there are different companies around the world that have different sort of interests and perspectives on that. But I think what we do need to see, and we've obviously got the summit coming up later this year, is government really getting out and communicating about that? Because I think for a lot of people, they will just hear these sort of quite strange sort of scary stories, but not really understand the likelihood. Of, you know, so I think we need some good communication on that. Um, I agree with what the others have said um, on, you know, it's hard to say that we would be 
better prepared now. Um, clearly, we're sort of on vulnerabilities in the population. We're sort of not any better, perhaps a bit more um, educated. We don't have Boris Johnson as prime minister, uh, so, so that might be a plus. Um, but but it, it's hard to say. And I think the better question to ask really is, are we more prepared for any type of threat now than we were three years ago? And I think it's hard to say the answer to that is yes. Um, just on James's question, um, I think we absolutely need better scrutiny of our preparedness. Um, it's very striking that we don't have anything really like the OBR, the Climate Change Committee. Um, National Audit, Audit Office does a bit, but not very much. Um, and we don't, the level of debate in Parliament is really, really poor. So actually what you saw after COVID was stuff coming out about how we'd had these risk exercises that nothing had been done about that. Uh, why was that not known about? Why were opposition MPs not sort of pointing that out? So actually having some sort of external institute or body that applies pressure, I think is very important. Thanks, Tom. OK, three last questions. I've got one here, one here and one here. Uh, thank you. A fantastic panel and strongly agree with much of what was said. My name's Kate Arden. Uh, I was the Director of Public Health for Wigan uh, and also the Chief Emergency Planning Officer and was Andy Burnham's Public Health Advisor throughout COVID as the lead for Emergency Planning and Health Protection in Greater Manchester. I guess my question to the panel, perhaps just, uh, I know if I may, one observation. Just very quickly. Yeah, the, the England response centrally was a mixture of ignorance and ideology. Ignorance in central government of what local government did, ideology, we don't use the public sector, we go to the private sector. My question to the panel is, um, how do we actually uh, make more resilient communities by investing in uh, community capacity building through things like the Royal Society of Public Health Training. And uh, I guess, Nia, a, a particular question for you. You need to take health emergency planning out of DHSC. What they do is NHS emergency planning. They don't do health protection emergency planning. And I, what I would like to see is some really good in, uh, targeted investment in updating our surveillance systems. At the moment, we uh, rely on surveillance systems based from the 1950s. One of the good things of the pandemic was that the, the scientific development of wastewater testing and genomics could be applied across the whole range of communicable diseases. We're doing communicable disease uh, management right now in this city. Outbreaks happen every day, not just pandemics. Thank you. Gentlemen. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm Toby Harris. I, apart from chairing the Parliamentary Labour Party in the House of Lords, I also chair the National Preparedness Commission, which brings together sort of 50 leading figures to try and raise the government's gain on preparedness and resilience issues. I want to follow up the point about um, the risk register. Um, it is a huge step forward. It's better than it, it has been before. It focuses on acute risks which require emergency response. That is the reason why they have excluded chronic risks. Also, chronic risks are more difficult. They require a whole of government systemic approach and they don't know how to do it. Um, and that includes not only AI, it includes uh, climate change, uh, it includes uh, uh, antibacterial um, resistance, a whole number of things of that nature. But the other thing that the National Risk Register excludes is, if you like, business as usual risk. So, for example, the fact that we've got a health service which is failing 
Um, it's just assumed the Department of Health will deal with that. Well, we know how that's going. Um, and yet two thirds of the risks in the risk register, it says in the mitigations, and the health service will need to do this. So how is that going to work? Yeah. So I, I wanted to draw the panel's attention to an article in today's Times, which I may well have been um, then picked up in Rachel Reeves's speech, but we're all here rather than there, um, which made two suggestions. One was that there is there should be a uh, the Treasury should have preventative expenditure investment as part of its categories of activity, which would enable there to be long-term investment. And the second, and it's partly been picked up by some of the points which have been made already, is that each of the missions should be underpinned by, if you like, a, a, a committee to mark the government's homework on that, like the OBR or whatever. I just want to make the point that resilience and preparedness is, is not one of the missions, it's part of the underpinning of the missions, which is about the defence and the resilience of the nation, and whether or not the panel agrees that that is the sort of thing that needs precisely that independent element to say uh, to government, you're not doing enough in the same way that the Climate Change Committee does. Thank you. Okay, and then one last one at the back. Um, Phoebe Clay, co-director of Uncheck UK. Um, I mean, one of the things that we see contributing to lack of resilience is deregulation very directly on, on Grenfell. It was very much a factor in the inquiry and indeed on COVID. I haven't heard the panel uh, comment on it. We are a campaign that's been set up to make the case for strong public and environmental protection. So I would really love to hear the panel's reactions to that. Um, could I just uh, interrupt, Chair, and just say, I take the last three questions as being extremely good advice and things that I really ought to think about um, and will be thinking about with my colleagues, but I have to dash to the next event at which I'm speaking. So if I may, Chair. Of course, yeah. thank you so much for your time. Okay, Tom, I'm going to come to you first. Pick whichever of those you'd like. Um, I've I entirely agreed with Kate's um, points. I thought that was really... Oh, Kate's gone. Um, uh, <laughs> well, I didn't agree with them at all. I, I thought they were rubbish. Um, no, uh, I, I think we have a sort of department for the NHS, not a department for health. And I think that's a, that's a real challenge when you're thinking about some of the health uh, risks that we face. And I also agree with her about surveillance. I think we've actually thrown away some of the quite good things we had learnt on the surveillance uh, during COVID. And I think that's a real shame. Uh, on Toby's points, yes, I thought that was a very interesting art piece in the Times this morning. I think Labour absolutely needs to be thinking about fiscal rules and how you distinguish productive capital investment, resilience boosting investment, how you make space for that in the Parliament where they're going to sort of be under real pressure on the public finances. And I think uh, having, uh, you know, tr trying to distinguish between those different types of spending and the kind of useful impact they can have will be really useful. A lot of the problems that we have in, at the moment are because we had, you know, the last 10 years of capital budgets being slashed uh, to plug holes in day-to-day -day spending, and we're really paying the consequences of that, whether that's crumbling school buildings or, uh, you know, not having enough MRI scanners in hospitals or et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think thinking about that spending is really important. Um, and yeah, just on the, the committee, I think there's a we at IFG sometimes challenge ourselves because we were always wanting to recommend an OBR for X. You know, it was very interesting, <laughs> easy kind of technocratic safe space to, to end up in. Um, 
so I think if you had one for every mission alongside all the other, you know, you could end up with a sort of very technocratic approach. But but I think we whether it's a beefier role for the National Audit Office, whether it's a parliamentary select committee, whatever the mechanism is, it's something to sort of force pressure on politicians. Thanks, Tom. Claire, any final comments from you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we obviously tend to go towards the technocratic, but ultimately these are all political decisions, aren't they, about what you value and whether you value having a healthier public that is better able to withstand, you know, future health emergencies. Um, I do think we need to think that the NHS is being failed, though, rather than it's failing. I'd hate to think of my clinical colleagues with their emergency response over the last two years being put into that category. The NHS is being failed by being under-resourced and being expected to do far too much, as you said in, in your comments, Tommy. Everything was like, oh, the NHS will do that. NHS, local voluntary community will do that. Local authorities do that. After they've... With what? I think would be the response. With what will, will we as a community be able to do that? So I think there just needs to be... Uh, a whole scale kind of reframing of what the priority is when it comes to preparing for emergencies. Thank you, Claire. And Mike, you get the final word. Thank you. Um, well, it's been a, a yeah, really great conversation. I think what the voluntary community sector brings to the table is a real focus on human outcomes. And I think that has, as opposed to just to talking about infrastructure, and I think that there has been some progress on that, but it needs to go a lot further. We think that a lot of what needs to be done is how is, is around three areas around data and insight and actually understanding vulnerability and who's being who's being forgotten who doesn't have access to services uh, relationships that need to be pre-established and developed in advance of emergencies and then practicing and you talked about cap about capability building um you know with the voluntary community sector emergency partnership once a month there are 60 or 70 organizations coming together to practice to talk about capability building for different types of emergencies, and most of those are organizations that would not have seen themselves as an emergency response organization. And I think the other thing that's really striking about the conversation, which again we see in our international works, resili resilience is an outcome, it's not an input. And what the conversation has shown is that the multi-dimensional nature of uh, resilience, whether it's about regulation, as I'm sorry to catch your name, as uh, um, you, know, you highlighted, be it about pre-existing uh, vulnerabilities that people that people have, it is, it is being about economic. And so how we invest in the, the readiness, which I think is what we, what, if we're going to bound this challenge, which I think we have to, otherwise you can't just end up it being about everything. It's got to be about readiness for the threats and emergencies that are coming. Um, and there's a, they're, they're potentially bigger and there's potentially more often um, uh, in the future. And so I think that trying to focus on preparedness and readiness and what are the things we need to do together and how do resources need to be freed up in order to enable us to do that? And what relationships at senior levels, locally and nationally, need to be in place beforehand to make it more likely that we work as one team when, you know, when the big balloon goes up? Um, and um, I think that's a lot of what we're, we're trying to do as the Red Cross and indeed as the Voluntary Community Sector Men's Partnership, working with Tobin's colleagues, working with government and working with private sector. So thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Mike. Right, we're already running slightly over time, so I'm going to draw it to a close there. Thank you very much the British Red Cross for making this event possible. Thanks to our fantastic panel and thank you to all of you for spending an extra five minutes here and asking such brilliant questions. Thanks.